Good evening. It is uh, an honor to be here tonight. Thank you very much for coming. Um, I, I want to say thank you so much for the encouragement that I've had um, with the opportunity to speak over the last uh, few months and talk about some of these songs. Um, it's been a I have enjoyed it, and you have been a great encouragement to you, to me. So thank you very much. I'm a little nervous tonight because um, I've kind of had a, a, a lesson on my heart for a while, and so um, I'm kind of nervous about it, but we're going to go. And, and so um, thank you very much again for being here tonight. The song we're talking about tonight is When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. We probably just sung sang, sang, that's it, isn't it? The oldest song in our songbook, at least as far as the words go, um, because it was a song that really led to a change in how congregations sang. Um, it was written by Isaac Watts. Uh, he lived from 1674 to 1718, and he is called the father of English hemodity, if I said that right. It's a big word. Not a big word, but one of those uh, 25-cent words. Isaac Watts did not like, his father was a preacher, and he didn't like the singing that was going on in congregations. And so his dad said, well, if you don't like it, write something better. And so he did. He went into his room, locked himself in, and within the next week came out with a song. And when it was sung before the congregation the next week, it was so well received that it began a change in how music was done. He was quoted as saying, To see the dull indifference, the negligent and thoughtless air that sits upon the faces of a whole assembly while the psalm was upon their lips might even tempt a charitable observer to suspect the fervency of their inward religion. In other words, they look pretty bored. Up until that time... What happened, what most of the singing comprised of, was they would go in and they would take one of the psalms and a leader would get up and he would basically chant that psalm and then the congregation would chant it back, chant it back to him. And a lot of times it may not actually make a lot of sense. Uh, sometimes the way the psalms were written... Uh, there would be a complex thought, and it would be broken down in three or four stanzas. And so by the time they got to the final part of the psalm, they may have actually forgot what they were singing about. And so that was basically the way the song service was at that time. What Isaac Watts did was he started writing a song that was based upon, even it was scriptural, but instead of going verbatim with the verse, he started making the song fit what the verse was about. Um, when he was born, his father was in prison. And because of that fact, um, his father was in prison because of the fact uh, that um, he did not embrace the Church of England. He was in England, and you pretty much had a choice. You either a member of the Church of England, or you faced going to jail um, in, in that time period. Um, 
So he always looked up to, for his father and respected the courage of his father in order to stand up and do what his father thought was right and ended up in prison. And not only that, but the hardships that that put upon his mother. Um, but his father did get out of jail, um, and they, his family um, grew after that. Um, Isaac Watts was a genius. He began studying Latin at the age of four, Greek at the age of nine, French at the age of 11, and Hebrew at the age of 13. It took me four years of college to get through Greek, and I could probably tell you three words uh, of all that, that learning that I got. Um, he ended up being the preacher uh, in 1702, he became the pastor of London's Mark Lane Independent Chapel. And at the time, it was one of the most influential independent churches uh, in the London area. Shortly after that, though, he began suffering from uh, psychiatric illnesses, uh, and that would plague him for the rest of his life. Isaac Watts was a bit of a homely-looking guy. He was about five foot tall. Um, the girl of his affections turned down his proposition, and her quote was, she loved the jewel inside, but she couldn't deal with the case that, enca that encased it. So uh, he obviously wasn't the best-looking dude ever. Um, but what he did transformed the way that we sing. Um, he set in motion basically what came to the songs that we sing now. And that's why I said this was probably the oldest words in our songbook. Um, he had two, word, two songs that he was, uh, mo his two most enduring songs, in addition to When I Survey the Wonders Cross, he also wrote Joy to the World. Um, he felt like the songs should fit the preaching, something that we kind of take for granted now, but he kind of was revolutionizing that idea that, that the songs should fit the lesson. Um, he thought that songs should be evangelical and not just words of a scripture, but embrace the meaning of the scripture. Um, the genius of his songs had a, a catchy beginning line, okay? When I survey the wondrous cross, that pulls you in. And if you look at a lot of our songs, matter of fact, if you look through our songbook, a lot of the songs are listed not by their title, but by the first line. Because that's kind of the secret formula. Uh, you have a good first line that gets everybody, gets everybody involved in the song. And so a lot of our songs we know by the first line. Um, they maintain a theme throughout the song. And we can see that very much in this song that it, it, it's, the theme is the cross. Um, and then it builds to a climax. And this song certainly does that, especially if you see how the third stanza is sang it a little bit lower, it's more quieter, and then loud on the fourth to bring home that point. Love so amazing, love so divine. And so the formula we see very clearly in this song um, that he did. There are a lot of poetic devices in this song. Um, there's an oxymor two oxymorons in the very uh, first stanza. All the riches I gain I count but loss, and I pour contempt 
on all my pride. Uh, there's a paradox in the third stanza, a crown of thorns, um, and two rhetorical questions. Uh, did ever such love and sorrow meet, or did thorns ever compose so rich a crowd? And of course, the climax uh, demands my soul, my life, and my all. Reverend Carlton Young said the song successfully built a bridge from psalm oddity to hymn oddity and set the church free to create a living body of Christian praise in song. It took the church from a very patterned, stoic, almost monotone, probably singing to what we experience today. Um, and so what he did was, was, was quite unique. Now, this was actually not the song that I was going to start, that I wanted to talk about tonight. I was going to talk about the greatest commandment. So I couldn't find a lot of information. It's new enough. There wasn't a lot of information about that. And I guess you might go back that it was written by Paul um, because it's basically a musical version of uh, 1 Corinthians 13. So I didn't find a lot about that. But thinking about that song kept taking me back to love so amazing, so so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. When we look at the cross... All we can see, all we should see, all I need to see, and, and, and this lesson I think is to me, and if you all get something from it, that's great. But I think that it was something on my heart that, that my heart needed to see. When I look at the cross, and I see what Jesus did for me, the only response that I can have is to give my life to him and to love like he did. And that love was to give up everything for us. And so, um, to me, kind of one song led to the other song. As I reflected upon this, um, it just kept coming up, and, and, and things kept coming into my heart, and, and some of the discussions I've had with my sister in the last week or two, um, neither of my sisters go to church anymore. And, and, and the reason is uh, because things they've seen in the church. And not here. Um, but I think it's things that we can, we can learn from. And to kind of illustrate, there's been a lot of stuff in the news lately um, with the, what the president's done about... Um, the bathrooms in our schools and, and a lot of discussion about that and, and things that are difficult for us to talk about and, and try to be as, as soft as I can about this. Um, a lot of responses that I've seen on Facebook and some that I responded to uh, about this, after I started looking back at this, I felt pretty insensitive about. And, and I thought, you know, I wish I hadn't liked that. 
I wish I hadn't uh, uh, agreed on that because when I really start thinking about it, I'm not sure that I'm responding the way as a Christian I should. Um, and so I want to talk about a couple things that happened in my life and, and things that I wish I could do over, things that I wish happened differently, and, and maybe put a face on some of this that we see in the news. I was in high school, and if you want to put a date on that, I graduated in 1981, and so you do the math. It was a long time ago. Um, there was one of our male students who was very effeminate. Um, and the word got out that he had sent valentines to one of our football players, one of our star football players. And when the word got to the football player, or when it all came out, he cornered him in the locker area of our school. I was a witness. About a third of the school was the witness. And not stopping at all, watched him take this helpless young man and slam him over and over and over into a locker until he was bleeding almost unconscious and left him sitting there and as bad as that beating was what happened next I think was even worse because what was the response of the administration to this and by the way to later come as the facts find out that I didn't even find out until a few days ago it was a prank Somebody had actually done this as a prank and sent this to the football player. It wasn't this guy himself. 1981, the response of the administration was to tell this beaten, bleeding, and confused young man that it might be best if he went elsewhere. That maybe he shouldn't be at this school. No one else got in trouble. Nothing else was ever said. That was it. Now then, I want to take another incident in my life. One of my sister's friends growing up, part of the youth group in the church, um, she was a bit of a tomboy. And but she was very active in the youth group. Um had close friends, very close friends in the youth group. Uh, she graduated Bentonville High School. She graduated from Harding University. She was married, had children. Deep down, she always had an attraction to opposite sex. It got to the point that that attraction started affecting her marriage. And it finally ended in that marriage ending in divorce. About this same time, her mom got ill. And finally, to the point of death. And on her deathbed, her mom told her, first time she had ever heard of this, knew nothing about it, that when she was born, she had both male and female parts. Okay? I thought this was something that very rarely happened. It happens on the average of five to six to seven kids a day 
born in the United States. Okay? At the time of her birth, the parents made the decision, because it was a simpler surgery, to remove the male parts. And so that's something she grew up not knowing at all about. She felt a, a great deal of relief when this information came out because finally things that she felt made sense. Find book, chapter, and verse on that one, okay? she involved in the church anymore after growing up, being involved in the church all of her life up until this started happening? No. No, the rolling eyes, the weighted comments in class, the reduction in fellowship, the guilt of not understanding what she was feeling drove her away from the church. It was probably best anyway. I mean, after all, how would you explain that to your kids? How would you have a class for people that have that issue? You see, deep down, we're a lot more comfortable when we're in church with people that are a lot like us. Deep down, we want our church to be filled with people that we can identify with. Deep down, if I'm honest with myself, I can't speak for anybody else. But I like to be around people that are normal. I don't want to have to deal with these issues because it's tough. Because it's hard to find a verse that's going to deal with something like that. It's hard to find in your heart what's right there. Where, where do you go with that? How do you explain something like that? Again, that's not something that just happens every once in a while. Six people, six babies a day. This wasn't an isolated case in some faraway country or some big city. This is someone I grew up with. This was somebody I literally saw four or five days a week. But not only did I see in high school, I saw her in college as well. So there's a face on that. To me now and so how is our how are we to respond you know back in the first century Jewish Christians they didn't want anything to do with the Gentiles that was a tough mix okay to have the Gentiles and the Jewish Christians and to try to get them to mesh okay Some, a lot of us grew up in the 60s and 70s where the white Protestant converse, congregations didn't want the blacks in their church. They wanted them to have a separate church. And there's some of that that still exists today because they were different. Are we ready as a church today to be able to to open up our doors to those who are different. Open up our hearts to those who are in some tough situations that are looking for things, that questions that we may not have the right answer to. 
Not only that, but I'm telling you, there's people that are watching. And they're watching us today. And a lot of them are over here at this college next door. Because the generation that's in college now, they're looking. And they're listening. And they're watching. And when they see us inconsistent, when they see us overly judgmental, they don't want anything to do with it. I said there's no book, chapter, or verse to go with that situation earlier. And actually, I think there is. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have the faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor, and I give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil that rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in the mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Love so, so amazing, so divine, it demands my life, my soul, my spirit, my all. There's a world out there that's different. There's a world out there that's not like us. There's a world out there that needs love. And the only place that's going to see it is if we show that love. It's a challenge sometimes to love those that are different from us. But Jesus a perfect being, God himself in the form of a man 
loved us to the point that he went to the cross. He suffered. He died for one reason, because of our sin. And because of that, we now have hope. We have faith. And the greatest that we have is love. The invitation is open anytime we come together. If you have a need that we can meet, we're more than willing to do that. Also, if you're unable to take of the communion this morning, it is still prepared. It's waiting and ready. Um, during this song, if you will make your way to room 100, um, it'll be there and prepared uh, as well. At this time, if you have any needs that we can meet, please come all together we stand and while we sing.